Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, your Midwesty bestie, who is craving some foraged morel mushrooms and hoping to score some soon. Welcome to Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice, serve it a perfectly seared steak, then giggle as it watches in horror while we slice that steak to reveal it's actually cake. Today's episode is an entertaining and thought-provoking chat about queer stereotypes and how they've evolved over the last few decades. But first, I want to talk about some tropes that aren't very queer, but we're trying our hardest to change that. Comedian Sonny Leprade made a couple of TikToks in early April, joking that Dylan Mulvaney was an interesting choice as the face of Bud Light because she's more of a wine spritzer gal, and when Dylan commented swearing on Cher's grave that she does in fact enjoy beer, Sonny fired back challenging Dylan to a warm beer shotgun duel, and reminding Dylan that since Cher is in fact not dead, she didn't believe her. I deeply wish this had been the only variety of pushback Dylan had received for her paid partnership with Bud Light. Unfortunately, anyone with a social media account of any kind knows she's been the latest recipient of an anti-trans dog pile for her advertisements with the beer brand, as well as KitchenAid and Nike. What folks may be less familiar with is some of the steps Bud Light's parent company, Anheuser-Busch InBev, has taken since the initial wave of public commentary on the ad with Dylan. If you head on over to our Take the Last Bite TikTok, I've already got a few posts up about InBev's latest statements, changes, and responses. Well, kind of. So let's talk about some key bullet points so far. About two weeks after the video featuring Dylan came out, Anheuser-Busch's CEO posted a statement that didn't mention the actress at all and didn't address either of the quote-unquote sides of the online outcry, leaving neither the seething transphobes or the Dylan Mulvaney fandom particularly clear on the company's stance. Shortly after this, there were some personnel and structural changes done to the entire marketing division at Anheuser-Busch, a move that reportedly placed senior marketers closer to every aspect of the brand's activities, aka made them more directly involved in division-wide decision-making. Dylan went mostly MIA across social media until re-emerging recently to confirm she was doing all right, making the best of the situation, and learning a lot. On May 4th, during some kind of corporate money-related meeting, the CEO said it was too soon to tell what kind of financial impact the sponsored ad would have on the company's overall earnings, and made a point to emphasize that it was, quote, misinformation to call the video a campaign. One key point I discuss in my series of posts on the Take the Last Bite TikTok is that right around the time the sponsored ad came out and people were all talking about this piddly little beer that tastes like stale water, the Missouri Attorney General put forward the emergency rule that largely restricts trans adults' access to gender-affirming care. What folks may also not know is that Anheuser-Busch is headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and I speculated What would it look like if this highly profitable company that makes its money from something frivolous and in excess of anything any human needs to survive, used its resources, and fought for trans rights in the state it calls HQ? But as more non-responses from the beer company's figureheads roll out, 
More time goes by, allowing folks to forget about the blue can with Dylan's face on it, or the aggressive displays of toxic masculinity over a beverage. To quote Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without demand. Our conversation today delves into the ways we've been taught to understand how society views and treats queer and trans people, the roots of stereotypes and how they've morphed into and come out of political talking points of our opposers, as well as the craft of queer and trans people to establish our own tropes as a way to recognize each other through clever cues that only we can interpret, our own secret languages and patterns. Prepare for some cringy throwbacks to a show where high schoolers break out into song while Jane Lynch tries to destroy them on this episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice, and if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is, Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, fam. Let's go ahead and get started on this dreary uh, Friday morning for me. I don't know what it looks like for y'all, but uh, it's it's looking kind of doom and gloom. So we'll have a you know as cheery of a conversation as we can have. But maybe maybe the weather is a sign that this is this is just kind of like a very complicated conversation, but we'll make it, we'll make it light. We'll make it good. Um, so we're going to talk about stereotypes and tropes of queer folks um, today. And so I felt like a really promising way to start that conversation was just to go ahead and uh, do some introductions um, and talk about maybe what is a queer trope that um, is actually on brand for you. Um, so I can start just to model kind of what I mean by that. So for me, the first thing that comes to mind um, is kind of the like snapbacks and tattoos, queer trope. I own many snapbacks. Um, I probably haven't bought one in a while. I'm overdue. I don't wear them nearly as much because I, I put a lot of investment in my hair, but uh, definitely need my snapbacks and then definitely covered in tattoos. So I feel like that's a pretty on-brand trope for me. What about y'all? Hey there, I'm Justin. My pronouns are they, them. I'm back, back, back again. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> uh, there are two things that came to mind. One, um, all gays watch Drag Race. And mm. though I spent a long time not watching Drag Race because it was largely inaccessible, um, I've definitely caught up on all of it. Uh, and now my partner and I religiously watch every iteration of Drag Race. And Partially because, you know, we've watched everything else that there is to watch on TV. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, we've watched all of Netflix. What's next? Uh, <laughs> the other thing that comes to mind also is that gays can't sit. Um, and I do not sit in a chair properly. That is true. I definitely am there too. I had just definitely just had my leg draped over my chair in the weirdest way. <laughs> and we'll adjust probably 16 times while we sit here. Mm-hmm. That's fine. My chiropractor can fix it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Danielle. I'm back. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. 
And I'm also a gay who can't sit. Um, I have that that same that same energy. Um, also, I have the the side shaved hair. I also used to have like really brightly dyed hair, so that that's also like part of the the thing I fit into. Um, I just got a new office chair, so I do not have that uh, problem <laughs> right now with the sitting. But I really want that chair that I've seen everywhere, right online. It's the one where you can kind of like sit with your legs crossed while like at your desk. But I also feel like as a big kid. I don't know how trustworthy I would find that. So uh, the search continues for... Yeah, I'm also not about to spend $400 on a chair. Okay, that too. That's that's super true. Yes, I'm definitely a free furniture acquisition advocate in all ways, shapes, and forms. The Another chair, I'm currently... <laughs> the chair I'm currently sitting on, I found uh, wandering around my apartment building from someone who moved out, and it has served me very, very well. Except for the fact that my cats are turning into a cat scratcher. Is that another trope? Cats? Having cats. Animals. Yeah. Though I'm still adamant I'm not a cat person, so I'm not claiming that one yet. Not a cat person, but you have two cats. I love them. Okay, I'm a my cat person, not just like a universal cat person. That's what I'll stand by. Right. Anyway, instead of coming for me, maybe we can have... Um... <laughs> Uh, this conversation. So this has been on like the list of like running ideas for a while and um, wasn't sure exactly how to dip into this, but I feel like something must have sparked just the idea of knowing once upon a time, like when I was a college student, for example, in undergrad, like just there was a lot of resources and kind of language out there around different types of especially gay stereotypes, I'd say too. I should probably point that out, but just kind of maybe resource guides or in college I attended quite a few like different types of workshops and trainings that talked about misconceptions of LGBTQ people generally and I I think about what some of the talking points were then versus kind of what we see now or what we are experiencing as queer people and just kind of wanted to talk about the shifts and changes and evolution even just in the past maybe end of 20-ish years like the late 90s to now a frame of time of like what what has been kind of common or discussed stereotypes, what we're seeing now, maybe some resurgence of talking points from the early 90s or the you know 90s and before. So um so I guess the question there, right, is just like what are maybe some stereotypes about queer folks that you became aware of maybe when you were younger or coming into your queerness that you think maybe don't hold as true or don't really have the same um, applicability in talking about queer stereotypes today. I feel like this is still sort of relevant, but there's that really strong stereotype of like gay men are all really like effeminate and they're into fashion and they like, you know, uh, to do their hair in a certain way, whatever, any of that shit, um, which is still applicable now because people definitely still do think that, but it was like... Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I don't know if people still use this term, but there was the term metrosexual. Yes. Do people still say that? I haven't heard it in a long time. Yeah, right. So maybe. Um, so maybe. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so th there was that that sort of coincided with that sort of stereotype. So that's something that I remember hearing a lot about. But I'm not, again, I'm not sure if that's still like a thing that people say. I definitely think that that's true. Uh, <laughs> I I mean, I think I hear a lot about that, right? That like all gays are effeminate or everybody cares about fashion and also just like, no, everybody's unique in that way. So um, definitely plus one on that. The, what I'm thinking about right now is like 
the like stereotypical gay characters in media like will and grace just jack <laughs> right? and just the like unable to keep a job completely dysfunctional social lives just like everything's a mess and they only exist to like serve as comedic relief right like and i think that stereotype definitely like carried forward where you know queer people were just seen as like of comic relief sure yeah i think like i was starting to say kind of in framing the question there i think what i've come to understand this long into my own queerness is that a lot of the stereotypes i think that i was aware of or we were kind of taught about in college for me anyway like i said we're really predicated in like gay men and sometimes lesbian culture um, so one that definitely comes to mind is just kind of like gay folks being hypersexual um, and just very promiscuous. Um, and then also how that would translate into a lot of misconceptions about like bisexual folks and pansexual folks. But we weren't really using that pansexual language in the like early 2010s quite yet. Um, just kind of the hypersexualization of queer folks. But then fast forward to kind of right now, we have a lot of data, even from the conference that we host, right? Like a lion's share of folks coming to our spaces are asexual or demisexual or aromantic um, on, you know, under the ace umbrella in some way, shape or form and how just like, even with um, a larger prominence of ace folks, there's still this assumption that we are just hyper, you know, queer folks generally are hypersexual and just that's what we're kind of oversimplified to. Yeah, and and I think you can even take that a step further, right? And and talk about, you know, with that idea of queer folks being hypersexual also comes the narrative that queer people are groomers and pedophiles and how you you can't have a queer person as a teacher because they're going to convert your children. Right. Um, you know, as as if every fairy tale you'll read isn't a uh story about promoting heterosexuality right like yeah just existing in space as a queer person does not make it so you catch the queer like it's not we know that's not how it works come on get over yourselves no and you know i think that's one of the one that's one of the talking points that unfortunately is kind of making a certain type of resurgence because i i personally think it kind of died out a little bit you didn't see nearly as much kind of like headhunting style trying to oust teachers for being some shade of gay it kind of you know died down in a way where certainly i would say probably in the what 90s maybe even earlier than that lots of you know gay and lesbian teachers especially in k-12 through schools getting ousted from their jobs or you know choosing to leave because the environments were so hostile and i'm certainly sure that you know since then there has been plenty of instances of that but maybe on a you know less um just lesser scale and now those talking points as we're seeing you know this barrage of anti-trans legislation like those have come back into i don't even want to say vogue because i don't want to give them our language in that regard either but definitely like that is definitely a a, a, a hot button attempt that i think our oppressors are trying to take to just really demonize us to the worst possible ways you can by trying to paint us as child abusers and you know, sexual predators in a way that just is obviously inherently untrue. Yeah, I definitely think that the narrative has kind of resurged with that, right? Like, especially in, in, in some of the stories we're seeing, particularly in Florida, right? Where right. Um, it's it's all over the news with, with teachers being 
ousted because you can't talk about gender identity, right? right? And, you know, the reality is these laws are so reactionary and being written so hastily that, like, you technically can't talk about any interpersonal relationship, right? There was a clip that circulated on TikTok a while back where there was a um, a legislature questioning somebody who wrote a bill <laughs> and asked, um, you know, who was the first president of the United States, right? George Washington. Well, who's Martha Washington, his wife? Well, how under this bill are you able to talk about Martha Washington if you can't talk about sexuality and, and, and uh, sexual orientation? And the person was like, floundering to come up with an answer and the reality is they didn't perceive straightness as gender identity right it's the same thing as people saying like oh i don't have pronouns right it's a bitch the fuck you do that's <laughs> english english grammar lessons 101 but i ain't got the time well I, you know if we yeah. put money in education people might actually know that what <laughs> I think that's an important um, distinction too to make is that like it, the talking points are being repurposed towards trans folks, I think more extensively now than perhaps they were. So it's kind of just borrowing from what I think was more readily weaponized against like gay and lesbian folks because of that level of visibility and the level of movement work that gay and lesbian folks were doing that, you know, unfortunately didn't didn't center or pedestalize trans folks in the way that it could have and should have in those in those times that now we're seeing just kind of a, again a repurposing of some of those talking points and language to talk about trans people which to like the average cishet who hates all forms of difference that distinction probably doesn't matter but it does it does seem to have taken on a slightly different edge to it now um just because we are the you know we're an easy target i guess I guess, like, thinking about, you know, that's one arena, right? Like, the legislative arena, and that's really easy to talk about because it's just so constant, so constant, um, and especially on, like, a state-by-state -state level um, of just kind of how these bills that we're seeing and attempts at, like, restricting, you know, the lives of trans people especially, but queer folks more broadly, um, you know, that is one way in which, like, stereotypes are born, um, and also utilized and like given kind of a, a shelf life to keep to keep going, even though we consistently are able to step up and say, that's not true about queer folks, or that's not the whole story, or that's an oversimplification, or that's just outright gross. Why are you saying those things? Um, on the other end, right, like thinking about internally and thinking about like that intro question, right? Like there's also sometimes a utility to what we might more readily call queer tropes um to purpose like coding and cueing to other queer people um and so i guess i'm curious like what what distinctions do you see or differences do you see between like not succumbing to the ideas of stereotypes as they are prescribed to us by you know shitheads versus kind of queer tropes that are maybe rooted in culture or tradition or just like coming into queerness in the different ways that we are what does that look like for you something that immediately comes to mind is key rings like fun home ring of keys <laughs> right and and like using like signals 
to find other people who are in group, right? And so I definitely think that, you know, one of the ways we could approach this question, right, is talking about whether or not it's in group or external, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, like a trope is, is something that serves as kind of like an in group symbol to say like, hey, we have this in common, let's chat, right? Versus a stereotype being applied externally um, as kind of a generalization of the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to think about it. I guess I didn't, like, that's a, a good way to frame it in my mind, I guess, because I was having an issue, like, what is a trope? What is a stereotype? What is something that we ascribe to ourselves versus other people prescribing to us? That sort of thing. But uh, yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of that, actually. <laughs> Thank well, you, Justin. Yeah. I mean, it does get a little bit muddy when you think about media, though, right? Because there's right. all of this conversation about tropes in media that are really stereotypes being applied mm -hmm. to uh, different content, right? You know, back to the Will and Grace example, you know, there's ex one could say that, yeah, it's a, a, a trope to present, you know, Jack in that way, but really it's applying stereotypes to that character. Right. <laughs> Right. Which is, which does feel tricky. Like, even if it's, even if it's like queer, you know, queer media creators, right? Like, how do you, um, kind of toe that line, I guess, of really wanting to like encapsulate a queer narrative for a character and, um, figure out how to do it, you know, gracefully and in a way that like, there's just so much weight in, I think, even trying to create queer characters for things like TV shows or other content creation, right? I think about Pose, for example, how I think that was a more like enriching and very expansive version of just like there was many different types of queer narratives in that story, obviously, versus, um, you know, other maybe more mainstream like primetime TV shows that have like the one-off, maybe that person, you know, maybe that character is recurring for four or five episodes and then gracefully dips out and it's just they're just kind of like throwing everything at the at the wall and seeing what sticks as far as a, a variety of what yes theoretically could be queer tropes but the way it's being packaged just makes it very stereotypical and perhaps a bit unrealistic but it's just how much can you really like put into one character before it just becomes unreasonable and maybe a bit unrealistic that's the problem. That's why we need more queer characters. Because mm -hmm. then you can have that variety, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. In multiple people, not just one person. Right. Right. And it's also about, like, you know, who's doing the storytelling. Yes. Right? And and whether or not that's being presented authentically um, or just to make a quick buck, you know, churning out a show for ABC or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um. You know, and it's interesting that you mentioned Pose, right? Because, um, you know, one of the creators of that being Ryan Murphy has also had some really shitty characters, right. a la Glee, right? <laughs> I keep thinking about Glee. I can't stop thinking about, like, you know, Kurt as gay best friend and, yes. like, the lesbians who want kids and the the closeted jock. And, like, it's all there. It's all just, like, stuck in there. It's like, how, how much more tropey can you get, buddy? <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's awesome. one of my tropes, though. I was definitely a Glee gay, so... Uh, I was yeah. just going to say that. Like, yeah. I was a Gleek. And yeah. also, I, I like, re-watched it, uh, like, a year and a half ago. It's messy! Because we watched all of Netflix and there was nothing else to do. <laughs> I re as well, yes. <laughs> um, and it was just so interesting watching it again with, you know, 
the context that I have in my life now, how compared to when it was airing, what, 10 years ago? I don't know how old Glee is. Yeah, it's old. Um, there's a show I regularly watch called Good Trouble, and it's a spinoff from a show called The Fosters that um, the premise of The Fosters was that these lesbian parents had several foster kids, and so it just follows kind of all the the mayhem that the foster kids get into. And so now the spinoff is two of the children um, kind of as adults kind of off doing their own thing. And there's um, several queer characters and like, it's been a little tricky because like, it's not the worst representation, right? And like that, that's uh, the bar is so low for me to have to be able to say that, right? But there's one character specifically and his name is Gael and he is, I don't know, I can't recall now because there's been many seasons. I can't recall if if they've used an exact like language identifier, but he's for the purpose of this conversation, we'll say bisexual, perhaps pansexual. I don't know. But what I've found frustrating is that they are so reluctant to just like put him in like a, like a more serious relationship with another guy. Um, all of the instances in which he's interacted in some kind of like romantic or sexual way with another guy have been like very short lived or, you know, hookups. And then he's had these like long-standing, more meaningful, in-depth relationships with women. And it's it's kind of frustrating because they kind of have always just cast him as like you kind of sometimes forget until until there's these one-off moments, maybe one 30-second instance in an entire season where that's kind of better. And it's like, you know, that that's fine. And like, that's a narrative that like is legitimate because I'm sure that's how a lot of folks exist in the world. And I shouldn't forget that a character is queer until like comes back up again in a very brief moment. Um, I don't like that. I don't like it. He's bi, but he's not too bi. Correct. Yeah. Like he's now had a like kid with a woman and now he's like co-parenting this child with his trans sister and um, her husband, which like that storyline is very dope. Like I think like breaking down the concept of a nuclear family and co-parenting with this like bisexual man and this trans woman and her husband, like that's cool. So but like his queerness doesn't seem to be held as like a, a key piece of that. And it's not a requirement, I guess. Um but I, there's something about it, and I just kind of, I shouldn't, like I said, I shouldn't forget that that is, like, a piece of who he is in the storyline. I mean, that's just sloppy writing. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, but it is. Like, it, it's difficult to to thread that needle between, you know, hiding a character's queerness versus, like, making it overt and stereotypical, right? And it's it's how do you continue to be authentic to that? that identity of that character you know without going overboard for sure it's 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 a challenge and also it's made even more challenging uh by media censorship mm -hmm. you know I, I think about like kind of the evolution of the understanding of what like queer coding is mm -hmm. right um and queer baiting Mm -hmm. right where if you think about like early media right like you had to really censor uh anything that wasn't a dominant identity and there were all of these little clues to say like oh you know this character is actually gay right and people looked for that you know to be able to see themselves in those media um but if we were to look at that 
in today's context, you would be like, well, they're just hiding it and they're burying the gaze, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the the context in which those media are being produced has has shifted, right? So now you look at somebody just hiding uh, that part of a character and you're like, well, why are you doing that, right? Like you, you should be able to be open and authentic. And also <laughs> in the capitalist hellscape in which we currently exist, like they have to be able to market that media, you know, to networks and whatever. And, you know, especially when you look at trying to, you know, share that show or movie in markets outside of the U.S. even, right? Like that makes it even more complicated uh, where, you know, that that needle that you have to thread gets even smaller. What? To what extent does discussing stereotypes and discussing like misrepresentation or lack of representation in media potentially inadvertently sustain those stereotypes and those like lacks like lack of representation, right? Like at what point does does even having a conversation like this or a version of a conversation like this, you know, whether it's in media or whether it's just kind of generally speaking, like how does talking about stereotypes potentially self-prophesize and keep them alive? I think that's true for for anything. The more you speak about it, the more like it exists in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like there is a certain like nuance to these sorts of conversations that need to happen. You know that that we that we are differentiating between tropes, stereotypes, things we impose on ourselves, things that others prescribe to us. But a lot of conversations that happen like this don't do that. Um, and I think there's a, a really fine line you need to walk between. Um, like giving people those characteristics in media, especially, but also just like generally in life. Uh, and then also taking what other people give you as like authenticity, even if it is like in a stereotype or a trope. I mean, you know, they say stereotypes come from places, they come from real life, right? So theoretically, I mean, so there, there's got to be some place it comes from. The other challenge is that you can't control your consumer, right? Right. So you could have the best of intentions as a person producing media, right, to try to interrogate these tropes and stereotypes. But how the viewer interprets that, you can't necessarily control, right? And so, you know, to me, it feels like a pretty common narrative where if a show has a queer character, all of a sudden there's this manufactured outrage about like, oh, there's no straight characters in media anymore and the gays are taking over, which like, yes, the gays should take over. Um, you've had how many years of, of dominating <laughs> the media landscape? It's time. <laughs> it is time, right? But like the reality is the the portion of characters in media that are still, that are some shade of queer is still minuscule, right? Um, but, you know, by presenting any of these tropes or stereotypes or, you know, queerness in general in media, right, it, it gives more examples for people to point to, to say like, oh, well, you know, this one character on this one TV show did this. And so all queer people must do that. Right. So yeah, it is, it is reinforcing a little bit. Um, but I don't think that means you should stop having queer characters in media mm-hmm. well and i think beyond like media you know i'm thinking about like the social implications i think about like um conversations with 
you know, college students, for example, is based on my Monday job, um, <laughs> uh, where like this feeling of not being queer enough is maybe sometimes upheld by the ways that folks think, either think that they're supposed to show up or they're kind of using other queer folks as a benchmark without kind of acknowledging maybe where that person has come from or what access they potentially have had or how long they've been part, you know, embarking on that journey. Um, and how sometimes I definitely kind of see the tropes that we recognize internally low-key, maybe weaponized in a like horizontal hostility way to kind of police or manage expectations about each other's queerness. Um, right. I can remember being, uh, you know, at the 2014 Mumble Talk and being misperceived as like a cis straight person because I was very high femme at the time. And I just it it was truly unfathomable that that was a conception that someone had. And I was like, where does that come from? And it's, oh, because if I dress this way or my hair is 15 inches long or I'm wearing makeup, like it could not possibly mean that. I'm some shade of queer and I don't understand that because femmes are like the, you know, bonding agent of the queer community in so many ways. I was like, what the hell? Um, so I've seen it, you know, kind of utilized in that way too, of just like how we manage each other's queerness and it's not cute. No, it's really gatekeepy and it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely that punching sideways sort of thing, punching mm-hmm. down, which... Uh, is gross and icky uh, yeah as on one hand you know it's unfortunate because i feel like you know we've we've maybe it's not talked explicitly but we've referenced plenty of times that there's there's ways in which we try to cue to each other especially in predominantly cishet spaces to kind of indicate like oh i see you right can't see someone unless there's some kind of cue oh i see the button on your backpack or oh i see the you know, color of your hair. And like, sometimes you miss, right? Sometimes like there's, there's the misconception there, but just ultimately queer coding doesn't mean that you are a queer person per se, but that maybe you are a safer person, that you are someone who acknowledges queer existence. And you may have like a, a queer coded, you know, piece of clothing or a button on your, you know, backpack, like I said, that's going to at least indicate that you are a safer person than perhaps other folks in a predominantly cishet space. And then on the flip side, how those then become kind of criteria for queerness when there is not a one-size-fits-all checklist. Those cues can look very different, and those cues change every week, quite frankly. Yes, if you don't have a ring of keys, you're not a lesbian. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. No. Mm -mm. And I do think it's really complicated, you know, to navigate that right as it, especially you know as somebody like if you're somebody who's kind of newly discovering your own queerness right it feels like an insurmountable task to figure out all of the signals that you mm-hmm. might encounter right um and sometimes those signals can be useful but also not having access to those doesn't mean that you're not queer right um it's there's there's no one way right to express your own identity and yet there there is definitely still some of that like reinforcing of these old tropes in order to 
you know, police who can and cannot be identified as a part of the community. Um, but then you also see those same tropes being used by others to say, well, your setting is back, right? Like I think about the happen to be gays, right? Um, and they're like, well, we don't want to include you as a part of the community because you make us look bad and we're never going to get marriage equality if you're trans and you're part of the community too, right? Like that's a whole, that's, that's a lot of another conversation, uh, several conversations probably. Uh, right. But like, you know, some of the same signals that people use to identify one another are also used in group you know, by people who maybe have, you know, internalized shame or whatever other feelings to say, well, you perpetuating this, you know, because it makes you feel good is harmful to me. And therefore you need to stop it because I'm more important than you. When long of course I've got like six thoughts trying to come at it now, but at the same time, and I, this is a, its own whole separate conversation too so like we don't get in weeds a bit but like it reminds me of kind of the the annual conversations about what is and is not appropriate at pride like events mm-hmm. right like how say sexual, mm-hmm. yeah like is you know bdsm and kink you know a quote-unquote appropriate to be represented as leather appropriate to be represented you know even are trans people appropriate to be represented at this point um in pride spaces uh and just again, how some of those internalized tropes of not wanting to give off a certain cue to our cis observers, if you will, cis straight observers, um, is part of the kind of internalized policing of how we plan our own spaces. That's frustrating. Yeah, You're making like the rest shouldn't... of us look bad. So you should you don't don't show up as your authentic self because you make the rest of us look bad. Right. Right. But also why are <laughs> right, right. And also, like, why are we designing our spaces based on a cis gaze? Because that's what right. we're coming from sometimes. Most of the time. Oof. Yep. <laughs> the capitalization of pride. Oof, <laughs> about in the parking lot, bro. And it's coming <laughs> in season five. <laughs> Oof. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's, there's a lot of inputs I think that kind of inform what kinds of choices we want to make. Do we want to give signals and cues when we go into certain spaces? Do we try to hide some of those cues when we're going into certain spaces? I remember being in Mumble Talk um, at Mumble Talk 2017 uh, with you, Justin, and we were walking through Navy Pier in Chicago, and it wasn't, you know, it didn't dawn on me till we were halfway through walking through this giant, you know, public tourist attraction that I was wearing my protect trans youth sweatshirt. And like, that was fine when we were in the actual conference space with everyone else. And I started to second guess feeling comfortable wearing it when we had headed it to the more very, very public um, space. And for no other reason than just like, not that I suddenly felt unsafe per se, but just like, I was very aware of what I was signaling out in that space, just even transitioning from being in our exact conference room versus out in the world. So it's really just, I think, a perpetual thing to think about while like we want to, you know, combat stereotypes and push back against them and be very mindful about how tropes that can be lighthearted and fun and comedic, you know, we can talk about them internally, just how how to be very, very mindful about who who we're 
coordinating ourselves around and for it should you know the priority should be for ourselves but also if there's value or you know some kind of intentionality behind trying to signal and cue to other queer folks in certain spaces um you know now that i'm in my early 30s that feels different right what am i signaling and cueing to maybe younger folks in very rural spaces that maybe they have not found the footing to be able to do right there is certain um, initiative that I think can be taken from that and also being mindful that we're not doing it in a way that sets folks up to think that there is one way or that you have to signal and cue to others in this way and that this is the only way um, and I you know I'm curious in 10 years from now or maybe this is how we'll kind of wrap up and think about think about the futurity of this version of this conversation in like 10 20 years from now right like what are folks in our types of positions going to be talking about is like, wow, people thought these really ridiculous things and or joking about things that queer folks, you know, have historically done. Like, what do we think are going to be some of the examples um, that folks are bringing up 10 to 20 years from now? Well, maybe gays will finally learn how to sit in a chair properly. <laughs> the evolution of furniture design is going to transcend. We are going to fix this. <laughs> Everyone's going to have a love sack because they won't be astronomically expensive. I don't know what that means. It's a giant, giant Big old bag. bean bag, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't know what a love sack is, that probably sounded really unfortunate. <laughs> I think that folks are going to be really confused about our infatuation with oat milk. Um, Non-dairy milk specifically, like a general, but oat milk. Uh I don't understand how that became a trope because it's not my preferred non-dairy milk replacement, but... Okay, but I love oat milk. That's fine. I just, I don't know how that became, like, the pinnacle when there's cashew milk out there, like... Because oats are cheap, I don't know. I, I learned recently that oat milk has been around since the 1400s oh. um, and was actually preferred over cow milk before pasteurization because... You know, yeah. milk was actually really unsafe before it was pasteurized. Yeah. And also so. just like, I have questions for the first person who like tugged on an udder and was like, I will drink this. <laughs> Hopefully they were not fam because um, I don't want to claim that. I don't know. I don't... What do you think we're going to talk about at a 20 Daniel? I'm not sure. I think probably like, gosh. I can't even think like 10 to 20. I'm thinking like tomorrow, you know, okay, I can't right, think yeah, 10 to 20 years. <laughs> um, I think that we're all going to look back at pictures of ourselves and judge us for the haircuts that we had. Yes. But that's always a thing, right? Like, you know, hairstyles change or whatever. You know, you, you look back and be like, wow, that was that was a choice, right? It was it was cool and hip when we did it, but uh who knows what we'll think about that in 20 years. Cool and hip. Amazing. Yes. You've got the soul of like an 80-year-old person, so I can't even imagine what <laughs> what your uh, energy is going to be like in 20 years. Maybe I'll Benjamin Button and be like a 20-year-old. In... <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, we'll have this recording archived somewhere um, that will probably be in some weird format that has not yet been designed or conceived for how we capture audio recordings and information 20 years from now um, to attest to at least this current snapshot of 
some considerations around tropes and stereotypes. Is there anything else folks want to name or add before we close out this morning musing around queer tropes and stereotypes? I have an anecdote. Um, yes. The first time I ever heard the word bisexual, it was from my health teacher. Um, and she told me that being bisexual meant that you date men and women at the same time. And that was a stereotype <laughs> I held for a long time before I realized I was like, hey, actually, that's incorrect. And that actually also might be me. So <laughs> I heard that for way too long. At the same time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know. Is that accurate? <laughs> No. I mean, maybe if you're also polyamorous. Right. If you're also poly, right. Sure. But that's like a separate thing. In a specific context, it can be true. true. Yes. Yes. And as a default, not quite true. Right. Yeah. I guess I just want to reiterate, too, that, you know, there's no one way to be queer. There's no one way to be trans. There's no one way to exist in this world. Right. And while some of these tropes can be useful to, like, identify similar people that does not mean that you have to buy into them it doesn't mean that you have to wear the ring of keys on your hip it doesn't mean that you've got to do whatever you know whatever the new version is right um it doesn't mean you have to have 800 enamel pins on your backpack um that's another one we forgot to mention earlier (laughs) um be you find what works for you and 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 that is enough I um, Okay, friends. Well, this was fun and informative, and we've got several conversations, I think, in the parking lot just based on having this one. So we'll have to we'll have to bring it back together sometime this season to uh, talk about um, capitalist pride events and who they're for. <laughs> that feels like it's on the horizon. So uh, mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. <laughs> Sounds good, friends. Well, thank you. Right. Thanks. Thank you. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgdinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>